Welcome to the Calibre podcast, brought to you by the Watchers of Switzerland Group. I'm Faye Sotteri, and in this episode, I meet with Mark Tolson and Bill Prince. We discuss the new launches of 2022 and the key trends that we've seen, from colour, exploration and innovation, and talk about our return to our first physical watch fair in two years. Hello, I'm Faye Sotteri, International Senior Watch Buyer for the Watchers of Switzerland Group. We're joined today by Bill Prince, watch journalist, acting editor-in-chief of Wallpaper magazine and long-standing friend of the business, and Mark Tolson, global watch buyer for the group. We're lucky enough just to have come back from Watches and Wonders, the first fair that we've been able to actually visit in a couple of years. And we're sitting here in our Regent Street VIP lounge with some new product. And today we'd like to talk about some of the trends we've seen, some of the new products, and how we thought the fairs went this year. So new fair, new product, and new approach. Bill, how do you think the brands reacted to the first fair this year? My experience of visiting the stands was that the brands were really just grateful to be back together under one roof. And um, obviously this is a much bigger roof now because we're hosting uh, brands that uh, left the now sadly ex-Baselworld event. And um, it just, the scale was, was impressive. Uh, it felt, it was actually I don't know how you felt about it, but it felt slightly strange because some elements of the fair reminded you of SHH, which was the Geneva-based fair that's run for the last 31 years, 32 years. And then joining it this year has been the uh, brands that joined from Baselworld, who brought their stands from Baselworld. So we had two different aesthetics operating under one roof. And depending on your vintage and the number of fairs you'd attended, you had this slightly out-of-body experience as you walked between the two elements of the fair, visiting the old Basel in Geneva and then wandering back into what was the old SHH. But fundamentally, I think the energy uh, was back. I think we all travelled under a certain uh, suspicion that perhaps um, COVID hadn't particularly left the building. So I was prepared for the energy and some of the social distancing to become slightly... Uh, um, eventful, but on the day, at all the appointments, I thought the energy was fantastic. I think everyone was just very glad to be back in business. Um, Mark, what does it mean to a watch buyer to be back actually at a watch fair? Well, I mean, I'd echo some of obviously Bill's comments. I, I thought it was it was wonderful to be back at a fair. I thought it was a good marriage between SIHH and, and, and Baselworld, and you say the familiarity about the Rolex stand being in, in a different place, but. Geneva's their home. Patek was there. It's their home. So that was a that was a uh, that was a, a good thing. I thought the energy was the energy was was great, as you said. I think people were really welcoming, um, and I think people were glad to be back. And from a from a, a watch buyer's perspective and a retailer, it was just wonderful to see product again. Actually, mm. have product in front of you, talk to people about it rather than. In a, in, a, in a screen, um, as we've done on our, at our desks since, well, the last fair was 2019, I think. Yeah. It's a long, long time, um, and um, it, it was just wonderful to see product, and, and there was, there was a, a fantastic selection of watches, so it was a great experience, and to see people, and see people from, from around the world as well. Um, it was uh, wonderful. And to your point, Faye, about new, I mean, it was new. We felt that this was very much a new era. We were leaving one time which had multiple fairs in Switzerland and various events around the world brands have had to be incredibly creative over the last two years we've all got very used to uh, witnessing watch launches over certain devices that we sit in front of a great deal of the time but to be back there and there to be a large auditorium and presentations and lectures and I thought the fair worked incredibly well from a personal sort of social media standpoint. So everything had evolved. So there was, at the same time as Mark and I recall, there, there was an eerie sense of the past present. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there was a very clear direction into the future, which is this is a moment which will now become absolutely sacrosanct, I think, in the, in the diary for the reasons Mark said around the Genevois brands joining together to join with um, uh, Watches and Wonders. Um, and it just brought a new energy a new, and also a certain discipline as well. I think because of the extra brands, because the fair itself hasn't grown in, in, in duration, um, there was a certain discipline in play and you felt that everyone was really protecting each other's time on the ground, which mm -hmm. I think both of us really, all of us really, really appreciate. Mm -hmm. Still too, many, still too many late nights, but hey, we were at a fair. Well, it was, it was, it was an intense period because we'd not have been at a watch fair for, for two years and doing our selections sort of on screen and via catalogues and, and, and online to go to potentially 20 
25 appointments, depending on how many had. I felt massively overstimulated. It was so amazing to actually see some watches. Mm -hmm. And the difference is you, ca you, you can't beat it. Um, and I think the industry responded really, really well during the pandemic. Um, but actually seeing there and having watches in front of you and the, it's such a tactile mm -hmm. and personal and personal um, product. So and then just seeing people also you haven't seen in a, in a long period of time. So I think Watches and Wonders dealt with it in its entirety. But um, also with a couple more years or uh, um, sort of a couple more years on me, I, I, d I certainly felt it. Certainly felt it towards towards the end of that trip, um, as you say, late nights, early mornings, um, just the intensity and um, back to back watches. But um, I was incredibly grateful to be back. Mm. I think the difference is I downloaded my wellness app, so I knew how many steps I took this year, and I never knew before. <laughs> and I looked, and I absolutely blanched at how far I walked. But that's good, keeping us young. Um, and, <laughs> and we've referenced obviously the pandemic and how. Um, it's been different over uh, the, the, the time out from the physical fairs. How do you feel that both the watch industry and the um, community of watch enthusiasts have spent the interim between the physical fairs, but the, the two year gap between the two? Well, I think that's the, a really important uh, point to make, Faye, because I think as much as we were forced back into our homes and uh, we found ourselves at one point with a tremendous amount of spare time, if we were lucky enough to have spare time, and a lot of people spent a lot of time researching watches. It's quite clear that the level of knowledge and therefore interest, and actually therefore the quality of the questions one gets asked when we're talking to people who don't get the chance to go to Geneva, means that I think we're again entering a new era. I, I, I can't quite imagine a time now when you really had to explain what you did for a living and where you'd been and what you'd been doing while you were there and what you were looking at and some of the brands that you had been looking at today. It's, are you going here? Are you going there? Can you ask them about this? Are they going to bring this model back? What's happening with this case size? Mm -hmm. And that's extraordinary and that's new. And I think thanks to the quality of the content at Watch the Switzerland Group and on other platforms, including my own, I think that uh, it's been an incredible moment for people to say, right, I'm setting some time aside to really study this subject, about which I care, I and mean, I know a certain amount, but it's time to go deep. And I think that's going to be a real, it's going to hold us, it's going, it's going to keep us honest, actually, because I think people are going to have a lot more scrutiny around what we do. At the same time, I think the auction world has really brought a lot of focus around um, uh, some of the more iconic pieces. But also the rise of certified pre-owned, which I know you offer here, has really clarified in people's minds that actually an investment into a watch, now, lo and behold, it could become an appreciating asset, but at the very least, it has a very high residual value compared to some other product lines. So that again has given people confidence and the encouragement to learn. And that learning has brought them much, much closer to what we do. And that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would agree. I, um, I think people have more than one watch these days. It's a, people have them for different events. I mean, there are people who are collectors, obviously, who, who you know, are after a particular brand or a particular type of uh, type of watch chronographs or divers watches or what have you but but also the general population who just wants something to look nice they they have more than one watch and, and it's uh, it's been a tremendous benefit to 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 us in the industry and, and has provided a, a sort of i don't know the, the the brands with a with a greater opportunity to produce more interesting watches because there is a ready market there it really is we'll come on to the color selections that are becoming very popular, but um, there are those I know who are lucky enough to want to collect the entire colour range. And that's something that, again, is a blessing for the industry at large, but it's also interesting that non-people that would have previously only been regarded as collectors who would have pursued that, now people are saying, well, I want it in every colour, or at least I want access to every colour. So it's, it's, it, there has been, a, I think, a sea change in, in how, how those who have traditionally been very interested in watches are now looking at watches. and it's. Uh, it's, it's, it's very encouraging. I think that's maybe a move from, well, to more, more towards accessorising, you know, a green watch because you're wearing green or something, you know, I mean, people, people do that as well as collectors, but, you know, uh, different, uh, lots of different dial colours to, to, to match outfits. 
And again, we'll, we'll talk about this, but whereas before I think there was a, certainly a suspicion amongst the market, or at least the customer base, that watch brands tended to give you what they gave you and you made your selection from what they were prepared to offer you. Now I think customers can see that brands very much want to meet them halfway and they do follow trends in fashion. They are following the wider world in terms of the, look at the number of pop colour watches we have now. Pop colour has been in fashion for the last few seasons. So the brands are joining the clients in trying to solve problems that the clients want solved, which is I want a yellow watch, I want a green watch, I want a blue watch. So it's, it's a much more, uh, it's new. It, it feels as if there's a new sort of shift towards uh, not, just not just producing fine watches, but anticipating mm -hmm. desire in watch collecting. So previously what we were seeing was the industry was led by what the uh, mezzles and the manufacturers wanted to produce whereas now they're responding to a demand of client um, uh, for, uh, expectation and, and requiring variety. I think so yeah I think the term presentation sums it up a bit. Watch, watch brands tended to present this mm -hmm. is our presentation mm -hmm. and I think and I think you can really look into uh, social media around this as well where you can see how uh, watches are being shared constantly, reposted and, um, and shared. And I think brands are very focused now on what is getting reposted because the metrics are there. Yeah. You can, you can analyse quite closely now, quite quickly, what styles of watches mm -hmm. are most popular on certain platforms. And presumably, I'm not an expert in this, in certain regions of the world as well. So it allows the brands to work much more forensically with their design teams to say, let's do this or let's not do that because we've seen for maybe the comment thread that you mentioned Mark, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on a certain website leads them to suggest that's not going to go down well. So it's, it's, it's forcing brands to experiment. I and mean, I think we all saw um, ideas coming to market from certain brands that perhaps hadn't had that same sense of experimentation five, ten years ago. It's interesting that they're, uh, as, as, a, as a loyal industry, that they're pushing those boundaries a little to experiment and, and, and try some other things based on, like you said, the, the metrics that they have access to before mm. now, which they wouldn't have had before. You reference colour um, uh, with the new product we've seen. I thought it was a very big trend. It's not a brand new trend for the industry, but should we start with that one? Or did you feel that was the most dominant trend of the of the fair this year and the, and the new product that was launched? Because it wasn't just watches and wonders. We've also saw Amiga launch products slightly before um, um, Breitling did also. Not all watch brands are present at, the, at watches and wonders. Sure. However, the novelty selection and launches did start from um, towards the end of January with some of the LVMH brands and then followed by um, Amiga eight, six, eight weeks ago. Not to answer that question, I was rather thinking about, uh, about um, about the sort of the globalization uh, that, that um, has occurred in the appeal of watches from uh, you know Instagram etc when particularly Chinese people started to buy watches in Europe or they had a particular style they were all quite classic mm. and and I think the the way people post stuff to come back to your point about social media there's lots of sports watches posted um, and and we we've seen a shift when we had when we had Chinese customers over over the last recent years, they are moving into what we might have called more European watches. Um, and I think to your point about to your point about how tastes have changed, I think the sort of the whole social media aspect and the, and the fact that everybody is connected to somebody on the other side of the world, um, it has changed tastes. And I think that maybe that leads to uh, lead, leads to, leads to the brands um, picking out certain directions. Mm. Um, I will answer your question. I think whether or not it was the dominant trend, it was clearly the one trend that if a brand hadn't or wasn't or isn't offering something in, in a one or other colourway that wasn't black, blue or white, it was noticeable. So I, I would suggest it has become endemic um, before it becomes generic. So there's a moment now where you would, the customer would expect to see some variety and whereas before they might be certainly a, uh, um, bemused by the number of colourways that are now available. I think now they kind of expect to be able to select from a choice. I mean, look at the lovely Navitimes mm -hmm. here. I mean, this is a, this is a, I think this is a personal, personally for me, this is a perfect confluence of two events. One is, it's an anniversary, it's 70 years. Mm -hmm. It's a tool watch. It was originally devised to aid navigation, particularly in the air, or indeed only in the air. And 
but at the same time it is now being offered, as Mark has pointed out, in a really cleaned up dial, beautifully designed, beautifully executed in a variety of, of dial colours. And I think those two elements together really we can fashion a sort of a, a where are we right now moment, which is the tool watch seems to be at the zenith of its mm -hmm. uh, appreciation and therefore uh, the excitement surrounding it. And I think that is what's bled into the social media furore around other, uh, yeah. the 50th anniversary of the Odomar PK Royal Oak, mm -hmm. and obviously, and then you bring in the selection of Rolex each year with their tool pieces, and very quickly you can see where a lot of the sort of summary attention is going, and at the same time, you're getting much more choice out of those um, pieces, and they're informing the entire market. And brands are launching with confidence as well, I think. Um, so what, whether it the multiple watches that you were referencing earlier, Mark, in that clients are wanting more than one watch for various occasions. I think gone are the times where your first watch happens to be a black or a blue dial. Um, you know, tag with their uh, Aquaracer Professional 300 with the bright orange. Mm -hmm. You know, that's going to be a great, a, 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 a great watch. Um, they do those models um, very well, and they are tall watches. They're launching. They're launching the professional collections um, this year when they started with them last year. Um, so I think also the variety gives a bit more confidence, where you don't have to conform to a specific um, color palette, or mm. do you have to wear a conservative dial with a suit if you're depending on on, on what on what your job is? But we the the colorways were prevalent, it wasn't just in dial options, I mean um, Amiga did the Speedmaster 57 and we've got the burgundy, the green and the blue. I thought that launch was, was mm. lovely mm. Um, and they, it was um, sort of slightly more muted tones because we're, we're talking about colour a lot but it doesn't necessarily mean just bright pops yeah. of colour um, and they were obviously loyal to the, to, the, to the original model in the slightly smaller case size, 40, just over 40 millimetres. Um, Hublot in the ceramics mm. that they do. Mm. Um, also, in the, with the sapphire, they the do those in colours. Yeah. There's, the, there's a lot going on aesthetically. The ceramics with IWC and their pilot watches, yeah. again, slightly more muted, but coming away mm -hmm. from the traditional, um, traditional, traditional models. Um, and I thought, I, I was really interesting for me. Colour, we're talking probably more dial-led and um, materials, but yellow gold mm -hmm. in aesthetics making an appearance. No one launching with strength or a, a wide collection but most of the key brands were launching a significant watch in yellow gold whether it was the yacht master yeah. um, from rolex whether it was the um, gold speedmaster from amiga um the uh, chinois from uh, cartier cartier played with yellow, yellow gold a little bit mm -hmm. and hublot launched earlier this year they did the spirit um classic fusion um, chronograph and the Big Bang all in yellow gold. We're just very familiar with rose gold or white gold in the industry, I think, not many people, but it's interesting that uh, colour is coming at us from, from a multitude of angles. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree. Um, I, I mean, I thought the, uh, the, the Hublot um, red magic spirit of Big Bang, I mean, it was full on, full on red. That was about as colourful as you, you, can, you can really get. Um, but the variety of greens is still is still consistent. Um, you know the pistachio on the uh, on, on the Navi timer that you referenced, and then obviously I think Patek introduced uh, four green dial mo dial models from the from the 24 in steel um, up to the uh, well, the 5270 with that degraded green dial. That was that was a beautiful, really really deep uh, deep and, and gorgeous green. And then uh, you mentioned about uh, you mentioned about Cartier. Um, blue um, blue ADLC on the on the Santos, so that you had a, a, a blue a blue coating on the on the bezel on the on the Santos, which looks looks really really cool. Um, and that was that was obviously on, on metal rather than just a dial. Um, so they were they were all interesting. Yeah, it's true. Actually, you're right. The um, it's it's it, it could be as bold as the red magic, or is mm. the or accented colour. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but what we're coming away from is just very traditional. Um, black dial, blue dial on, 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 on a watch. Or well, not coming away from it, it's just adding to. Yeah, it's a really interesting point, Faye, because you described it thus. You had originally, you had options in colour, but they were probably, but they were only presented through the use of precious metals. Mm. But now we have obviously access to ceramics and, and synthetic sapphires, which has brought the colour uh, right through from the dial to the bezel to the entire piece. And I think that, that has opened up, and obviously it's opened up an absolute paint box of opportunity. And I think we'll only see more, um, development within 
how actually the industry works probably with colorists and even artists. I think mm. we'll see, we've seen certain examples of uh, limited editions using with contemporary artists, but mm. I think artists themselves probably look at this piece of portable art as something that they can uh, administer as well. So it, it's, it, I, I, t I take it back, it probably is by definition the dominant trend actually. I think there's nothing that's quite meeting uh, the, the iterations, the frequency with which we see, excuse me, with which we see a colourway in a watch. It's interesting you reference artists and how different, um, I wonder if how different creative elements collide here because whilst it wasn't this year, we've seen it with the Ronnie Woods collection for Braemont where he, yeah. each dial, he, he had influence over Sangler for, um, um, for mm. Hublot. You know, they coordinate and they partner with, yeah. with, um, with the tattoo artists, don't they? So they do. Felipe, Pant Felipe Pantone at Zenith has uh, Murakami at Louis Vuitton. I mean, there, there, are, there are associations in play and I think that perhaps what's enticing people who possibly wouldn't have looked at working with a watch is the fact that they can now experiment and use colour as part of that watch, whereas before they'd probably be limited by the choice of material, as you say. So it's, a, and I have to, I, ju I just have to agree completely. I mean, the, the lacquered pieces in the Santos collection at Cartier are stunning, and that is in, in essence is a colour, is, is a colour piece as well. Yeah, was, I thought it was curious. Though, um, was it kind of going against the colour trend? Was uh, Doxa, for example, who've had mm. colourful dials all their life? All they introduced with white dials, which I thought was kind of a yeah, kind of white, kind of, yeah, the white with the white pearl white collection, which I thought was which was which was rather fun because they were already there and have been there for, for quite yeah, a number of years. Yeah, with and the, with respect, as you yeah. say, have done a lot with colour and yeah. have helped bring colour back yep. into tool watches. Mm -hmm. And to your point, Fred, the the I loved the Aqua Racer three hundred, yeah. and but orange is entirely defensible as a mm -hmm. as a as a wear watch yep. because it talks to the colour. Uh, uh, how colour works under, underwater yeah. and therefore yeah. you know this is orange for a reason it's not yeah. orange because somebody chose orange yeah. it works as a tool watch as mm -hmm. orange so it's it's everything plays into the strength of the the authenticity of these pieces I think and the legitimacy of the of the tool I suppose yeah and so. there was there was um, some element of um, I suppose vintage colour we might call it in, in terms of uh, sort of the copper dials or the rose gilt dials as, as, as I think Patek called them. Vacheron had something as, as well a, 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 mm. if I recall correctly with, with, a, lovely, with a lovely copper dial um, but the, you know the, the, the Patek the 51, uh, 5172 chronograph um, that was great with the copper dial and a white gold case really really classic looking piece and um, the sort of string shaped hands and the full figure dial it, it did have that sort of vintage ed edge to yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's the word, isn't it? Because I think people uh, were, we've got used to the term retro, and that's mm. not the same as vintage. Yeah. And we've seen some fantastic uh, reimaginings of vintage watches. And we've seen salmon dials, which I think primarily have moved from the auction room into mm. the design yeah. studio, simply because people have seen them, as we get going back to the social media point. And it's adding another lustre to, to collections that are not retro, but they are repurposing vintage tools. 222 from Vacheron. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I, I, I'm personally have always been a fan of a, a vintage watch anyway so that mm. one spoke again yellow gold yellow so gold. it was mm -hmm. um, um, not many that not in their collection. Um, so colour from the from say the inside out because of the accents as Mark referenced on on the Santos so um, slightly more um, subtle to dull colour to materials and mm. Um, and yeah, and the pressure and the, the precious metal element. Um, a lot of a lot of options there for for our clients and across um, great price points as well, yeah. which yeah. does it's not it's not restrictive not restrictive only. Um, yeah. What other trends did you feel were um, dominating this year? Um, compared compared to a few years ago, there's what I would call authentic innovation which is my way of describing something that there's purpose behind the decision taken to bring something new to market. I think with respect we can go back a few years and uh, the industry was, uh, was populated by, let's not say numerous, but several watches where you thought it's answering a question that's never been asked. And this time every answer has answers a question that we probably have been asking. And we saw it across the board, actually, and we see across d different aspects of, of, of the industry. Um, I suppose a brand that has innovation baked in is Tag Heuer. Mm -hmm. I mean, Avon Technology is, yeah. their, is their defining mission. Mm -hmm. And um, this year they came with uh, some fundamental step changes. I mean, they brought a lab-grown diamond piece in the Carrera collection. Yeah. 
which is, uh, is extraordinary. I mean, yeah. the dial is, is made entirely out of lab-grown diamonds. The crown has been carved out of a lab-grown diamond. It's amazing. It's a solid uh, diamond. Yeah, mm. and um, it's, it, it's an extraordinary piece. And was obviously the piece de resistance, mm. and it was treated as such on the Tagoya stand and in the presentation that Frederick Arno delivered around the watch. But I was, I was actually blown away by a more humble piece, if, if one could describe it as such, which was the Aqua Racer 200 uh, Solograph. Yes which is uh, powered by light. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, again, it's an intervention into mechanical watchmaking at a, at a Swiss watch fair mm -hmm. that I think brought delight to people because um, it, it arrives later in the year and I can't wait to see it. Um, and I can't wait, wait to wear it actually. I think it's a very practical, very interesting watch. And we know that the um, light-powered watches have mm -hmm. existed before. We Cartier brought one to market yep. just the other last year. Yeah, last year. So we're not claiming great breakthroughs in, in, in watch technology, but it's interesting to see how experimenting with different power sources, different uh, um, energy sources in this case, is, is bringing some, some generational shift in the way watches mm -hmm. are being presented. And I, th I, think, I think innovation, and then we can talk about other forms of innovation which tend to sit more within the sustainability uh, end of the, of the process, which is brands like Panerai, who've obviously done a great deal with e-steel and, yeah. um, and, um, and recyclables in not just in their watches and their straps, which is obviously quite, uh, quite it's not a commonplace, but is widely distributed throughout the industry now. You're now seeing it going into the packaging, yes. which once upon a time used to mimic an old oak armchair, and now is this beautiful redesigned, uh, light, yeah. lightweight, mm -hmm. um, not designed to be disposed of, but may, perhaps even designed to be folded away. But either way, it's a very, very pertinent piece of the, the customer journey that they're joining a brand that is determined to reduce its footprint. So I think innovation, not for the sake of saying, look what we can do or look what we've done, but for in service to, um, I suppose, reinforcing, in this case, the sustainability of an industry that can claim to be one of the most sustainable on earth, simply because its products last such a long time. Their dust to dust yeah. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. yeah. footprint on the planet mm -hmm. makes them probably one of the most sustainable. And as we saw, um, with respect during the last two years, because their supply chains are necessarily shorter, not, not exclusively, not across every band, but because supply chains compared to other industries that really suffered during the global lockdown because they couldn't access certain parts or certain materials, the Swiss watch industry was working on much shorter supply chains which allowed them to keep producing watches and that obviously aided and abetted the success that the industry's had over the last few years, in the last couple of years. So yeah, I think, there's, I, think I saw a lot of innovation and I can say, and I think that's reflected in the fact I saw far less um, pointless innovation. Uh, mm. Ideas that weren't possibly going to fly or at least weren't even going to go into production. Everything seemed to have a point. And sometimes, um, whilst there's a client for everything, some of these products can be almost peacocking in terms of what mm. the brands are there and showing off. And right, not, not showing off, but um, exploring and um, expanding on what they can do because there does need to be a point of difference. Mm. And with, but they stay within their DNA and their, their natural codes of their brands. But mm. when they're reacting to um, a, a, a wider issue, so sustainability is mm. global and that's not going anywhere. It's the loyalty and the, the, how, how they're approaching it. It's not going to happen overnight, but let's start with the packaging, as you say. Yeah. Um, the E-Steel was, was launched a couple of years ago. Um, we've seen a little bit from other brands, Oris, with their recycled dial. Mm. Um, from, from, um, and we, there's various other brands that do it with, with their straps. Um, yeah. So we're seeing these little nods to and in it becoming slightly more um, of influence within, within the industry. But they're taking it seriously, and I think that's... That's that's but but still staying loyal within their within within their um, um, within their 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 own language I suppose um, the Aqua Racer was uh, that's that was as you, I yes, think course, a, a key King, model yeah. for you yeah and again we were talking about the Aqua Racer King the thousand meter fully professional Aqua Racer and that and that had some interesting innovations in the sense that they were talking about um, a third-party movement they've introduced mm -hmm. into Tag Heuer. There was a moment a few years ago when brands were not loath, but they were reluctant to discuss too much about how they saw certain elements of their business. Um, now it's, it's, it's a much more open-sourced, collaborative affair. And I think that speaks to a generational shift, perhaps, in some of the people who are involved in the brands, which we may come on and talk about. But um, to, to your direct point about innovation, yeah, and innovation doesn't have to be, as I say, the 
the pursuit of something simply to demark oneself as someone who's innovative. The Cartier, who, who you may regard as one of the sort of landmark wristwatch manufacturers of the last hundred years, can still be extremely innovative in a purely technical sense. And I think we all were sta staggered by the, uh, the uh, Cousine du Cartier uh, squeezable watch. I think the term squidgy was used when it was presented to me, which is what was a word I've not seen bandied around at any watch fair before. But the, uh, the case is malleable and it was 3D printed in order to create the mesh into which a thousand diamonds have been set. You really have to see the piece uh, to, uh, to, to understand the work involved, but you have to handle the piece to recognise quite how dramatic it is to pick a watch up that can actually bend in your hands. Previously, a watch that bent in your hand was something not to be taken away, but this, in this case, it was. A, so I think innovation at, at every level, at, in every, almost in every department of the, of, of the watchmaking world, you are seeing innovation. And because, as I describe it, because of this newfound transparency, you're often seeing this innovation for the very first time, because often it was just hidden away in the, in the incremental improvement that came with mechanical watchmaking, which we, perhaps as an industry, perhaps as uh, as, as interested in, the, in brands, we would talk about specific technological breakthroughs in terms of balance wheels and, and hairsprings and, and, and certain other devices. But we didn't, we didn't really telegraph that too much because it was such an internal conversation around how, how um, synthetics were being used in mechanical watchmaking. But now we can talk much more broadly about innovation within watchmaking. And I think the audience are very ready for it. Because to be fair, they've grown up with technology in the first instance, the younger market. And you know they expect innovation. They expect things to move on. They expect things to change. And the watch industry is really responding to that and saying, we can show you something new without breaking any of the uh, codes that have kept us alive for the last century or so. One of them could be a plasma tourbillon <laughs> um, at yeah. 400,000 euros. Um, <laughs> um, but equally, at the other end, yeah. is that there, is, there was the very, very commercial um, piece that we've already referenced. Um, you've talked about the um, Cartier Coulson, mm. um, and I think that ties into the colour because they did they did one with diamonds and they did one with a multitude of different colour stones. Mm. So um, having a variety there, mm. shape and design also was so innovation was the more technical element that we saw yeah. aesthetically. Did you see anything? Did did we see anything that was? Um, stepped away from the traditional round wristwatch? I'll just come back to the Kusan actually, because uh, to your point about how, um, you know, the sort of innovation there, I think it took them almost three years to develop the process to make that, and then it takes 22 hours to make the case. So that's, mm. that's, quite, uh, that's quite some imagination to think about doing something like that three years ago, uh, and, then, and then putting it into, into practice, and, and, and the shape was well, was, was, was great. And actually. that's an important distinction, Mark, because I think we're not suggesting that this, all of this work has been done thanks to lockdown or due to lockdown mm. or in response to lockdown. I think in nine times out of ten cases, the watches we saw were thought up and in poss possibly even in production prior to the pandemic. But I think one piece... So it's interesting that perhaps colour was perhaps a, a, a not an easy win or a quick fix, but with respect, coloured dia dials can be changed and changed up and down. But for Hublot to bring the square bang to yep. market, that was a genuinely new model. And um, with respect, we didn't see a huge number of entirely new models from some of the larger brands. Mm -hmm. and, and to your point, yes, they had the Tonneau case in the spirit of Big mm -hmm. Bang, they had the round watches in the classic fusion, and now they've added the square. And I think that's, that makes perfect sense. And it talks to this, the context of shape in watchmaking that I think to mark your point about how watches gradually became synonymous with something that was generally gold mm -hmm. or silvered in, in steel or, or yeah. white gold and round. Mm -hmm. And now Cartier have never lost that thread of producing watches that are primarily, not exclusively, but primarily understood by their shapes, whether it's the tongue or the round. Mm -hmm. um, now we're seeing um, brands exploring and experimenting and also joining that journey around shape. And I think, again, it's reflective of the fact that there's a confidence in the, mm -hmm. in the industry yeah. and there's a real desire and a real appreciation of, of something different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought the, um, I, I thought the, uh, the square bang was, was, was great. I mean, it looks like a big bang, but it's square and it sounds mm -hmm. simple when you say it, but <laughs> there's an awful lot of work gone into making that, that watch look like it does. It's really cool. It looks like a Hublot as well. Yeah. They, they, haven't, yeah, they haven't tried something new and mm -hmm. come away from it. It almost looks like it's been part of their collection for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
it was uh, we didn't see many new uh, uh, um, families launched. Um, in fact, I think it was the only one where we, we, we yeah. it was a so a selection across the metals as well. You've got the black magic, um, and then working your way through the metal types. So um, a few options again for the clients, but it. They launched a Hublot that wasn't in their collection that looks like a Hublot yeah. and gives a point of difference from all the other mm -hmm. Hublot models that, because um, they've got a vast catalogue anyway. But this, yeah, yeah. this is um, It's a strong launch after the Integral, which came a couple mm -hmm. of years ago with the integrated bracelet, I think, that, which perhaps answered a, another need in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. But this, this, with respect, this is a watch that they clearly wanted to produce. Yes. And you know better than anyone what the percentage of sales of non round watches are. Um, it's not a it's not a home run much of the time. I mean, to, to move away from a round watch, um, the square we know from the Santos, you know, mm. we, 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 we're familiar, and Bell and Ross in the past. So it's 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 not an outlier in terms of the shape. Obviously, mm -hmm. a square is hardly an outlier shape no. after all. But it, it it's not something that you would per perceive as being something that was actually core to your range. But clearly, Hublot decided mm -hmm. it does fit because yeah. it fills the space yep. which a square watch, mm -hmm. which was lacking. I think it goes back to the point of clients want, wanting more than one watch if they're able to, because this might not be your first watch. Mm. Probably won't be if we look at sort of the statistics. There's nothing wrong if, if it is, but it just gives that um, additional variety and point of difference from from mm. from um, a market which is responding to demands and creativity and whether it's innovation or colour or design that we that we're talking about. So um, yeah, we weren't expecting that, but it was. Mm. Um, I, Welcome. I, I'm going to back this. I think it's going to do really well for Hublot. Uh, what were the other themes that you felt were that were um, relevant and um, prevalent at the fair? Or well, not just at the fair, to we, we, the sort of the product we've seen launch earlier this year. So um, we're, we're not just through watches and wonders. I think we might think that um, slightly, slightly awkwardly considering the last couple of years that we've had but a lot of watches that you could relate to in terms of travel uh, and an adventure GMTs and diving watches and, and that sort of adventurous type of type of type of watch I think there's probably probably there's a, something there that's yeah. worth exploring I'm going to go back on my own thesis, which is that all of this was planned long before the pandemic, but at the same time, I want to believe yes. that yes. the industry have yeah. recognised yeah. our need yeah. to get back out there and start mm. living the life that was mm. put on hold. And one of those elements is obviously travel. Mm. And there were some wonderful GMT pieces, yeah. mm. and uh, including my favourite piece of the fair we'll come on to. But it's, it's, it's exceptional anyway, the number of dive watches that are on the market currently. I yeah. mean, across the board and the yeah. quality and the price mm. point generally, yeah. it, it makes it, I think, if anyone was ever uh, fearful of buying a, a, a dive watch as their first watch, they would have no concern now because mm. it's, it's becoming, it, it's coming the, uh, one of the sort of central pillars of, of not just a watch collection, but just watch ownership. You could easily start, ideally, because it's a very robust watch mm. in the first instance. And given the lives that some people live, you know, you want something that's going to get through the hardest yards of your day rather than <laughs> have to be have to be literally benched while you go and do something like cycle to work. So mm. clearly that there's a market for it. But talking specifically about the GMT, that speaks to something that, that mm. directly from the heart, which is this, this idea of journeying and international travel. Of course, it plays back into the history of the tool watches that we were talking about. And the advent of uh, same-day international travel, which mm -hmm. regard, it required you to be resetting your watch after a few hours, sometimes by up to eight hours. Um, so it, its purpose is completely enshrined in tool watchmaking, mm -hmm. as we we'll come on to relics. But at the same time, there is now um, many different iterations. And I think we all fell in love with the Patek Philippe 5326G, which comes with an annual calendar mm -hmm. and a GMT function in the mm -hmm. same watch. Patek at first, yeah. um, but we were also completely blown away by the design, which is a redesigned Calatrava case with a Clou de Paris side, mm -hmm. and the dial, which was, now we've been talking about dials a lot, we've been talking about colour a lot, but this is a dial that sort of combined uh, texture, mm -hmm. a grained dial as they call yes. it, but also with a deep dark bitumen charcoal mm -hmm. uh, hue, which it was just, it was stunning. And it was matched for the purposes of the show on a beautiful sort of, uh, safari calf strap which also talks to this idea that this is a watch to be worn yeah. mm -hmm. possibly if based in the UK a long way from home should we say that 
But no, I, I was I was delighted, and we should speak of Tudor's uh, Black Bay Pro. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, just just slightly slipping back to the to, to the paddock, you you also got a black strap with it as oh, well, you? so you yeah. you got kind of the yeah. you got so the uh, to that, play that, off that dial. Exa wow. Exactly yeah. that. Yeah. No, I think they uh, they did use the word galvanised in one of the meetings, yeah. uh, and yeah. and it was supposed to. Um, Call to mind vintage cameras, the kind of mm. dial effect, like a, on an old Leica camera, yeah. uh, was what they were saying, which, which it kind of oh, does. I guess the finger, either the grip on the lens or possibly even the wrap, the vinyl wrap yeah. that would have gone around an old Leica. Yeah. 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 Which again talks to that idea of adventure and vintage. I thought it's, actually, I think between that and the Solograph from Taiko here was probably, we'll come on to that, but mm -hmm. it's, it was probably my favourite watch of the piece. but. Um, other elements, I think what's interesting, what were the other standout moments? And this may be me, or it may be just the f how much time I spend on social media, but the Rolex launch annual, un unlike 99% of brands, Rolex announced their watches once and once only. Now they announced the, uh, I think they announced the stellar dialed um, perpetuals uh, separately, but from memory, you had to wait for Baselworld and Rolex would then show you what they had and they wouldn't basically mm. show you anything again for a year. Mm. And there was no point in asking because you weren't going to know. So there's, so social media platforms got fascinated by this and spent half their time saying, what is Rolex going to do this time? Mm -hmm. And this, what is Rolex going to do this time has become one of the beats of the, of the watch calendar yeah. now. And I like watching the run up mm -hmm. to it and everyone just piles in saying, they, oh, I hope they bring this back or I hope they do this or I hope they don't do that. And in, obviously last year we saw the Bicolor Explorer, which created a, a real regard mm -hmm. and real interest. And of course this year I think, I think they knocked it out of the park in terms of um, talking points, didn't they? You got the teaser video as well, <laughs> uh, we, uh, like a, I don't know, a couple of days before, which mm -hmm. um, gave you a bit of a hint and, it, and there was sort of wild speculation then, but it did look like it was going to be a GMT, but nobody mm -hmm. expected a left-hander, did they? <laughs> a left-hander green. And um, so that, that for me is, it was one of the sort of mm -hmm. remarkable moments. And uh, it puts Rolex slightly on the spot now because each year they will, they will come back. And, and it, it feels quaint now, but you know, a Jubilee bracelet on a professional model. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was, that was something that yeah. was top, top topic. Mm -hmm. Now it's been much more dramatic. I mean, the, I suppose the repurposing, if that's the right word, of the Air King. Yes. Out, out of an oyster case and into mm. the, um, it's it's into um, the professional yeah, line. Yeah, yeah. it's assumed yeah. professional status. So it's, yeah, so it's, a, it's been given crown guards, it's been given the slab-sided professional case. Mm -hmm. It's now a fully-fledged professional watch. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that's, again, it's topic A, isn't it, on all of the threads discussing Rolex. Mm -hmm. um, it, it talks to where Air King has been before, and now it talks to where Air King's going next, mm -hmm. and that keeps people talking about Rolex. And as you described it, the left-handed GMT master, the Destro, as, yeah. as we're now calling it, mm -hmm. um, again, was, was an unalloyed social media hit. I mean, the people could talk yeah. of little else. Yeah. So that was one of the lifts, I think, of the fair. And, mm -hmm. um, and I would say with Mark, I think, I think notionally this idea that we are now regarding watches as absolutely essential to our, not just our everyday lives, but throughout our lives. And we're looking for pieces that really sort of fulfill our dreams for how we wish to spend those, that time. And quite like what you said earlier, um, it's quite a romantic notion that the, the brands, whilst they, their production and the, when they start the concept years in advance, it's just worked very well that we've seen a lot of travel and exploration as we've come out of the pandemic. So yeah. um, we'll, we'll say that, they, that they're, they're, they've um, led us in, into mm. that just in a really comfortable way, but obviously they would have, these designs would have been happening way before then. But it's quite a romantic notion, isn't it? Yeah. You know, now you're able to do something, here, here you go. Um, but and um, Amiga, just before the fair, mm. they launched the uh, Seamaster Ultra Deep. So on the theme of exploration, it's yeah, not, yeah. not not the GMT, but um, that we were seeing, and also Grand Seiko with their Evolution Nine. That was the um, sort of they the worked on a few GMTs this year, mm. launched a couple of those. Very um, nice pieces from Grand Seiko, and that talks back your point about Amiga. Fair, talks back to innovation because we saw the piece initially three or four years ago after its descent to the deepest part of the ocean and 20 years ago we'd expect never to see that model again outside of a museum and now it's mm -hmm. on the commercial market. Collection, it's, it's commercial yeah. collection yeah. and then when you look at um, what they've done with the 57 collection and, and brought a hand wound sleek yeah, it is. Uh, 40 39.5 39 
I mean, that's, that's a stunning watch. So at the same time, and of course we all celebrated its arrival in, a, in another form, in another material, in another brand. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm talking of the launch of the Speedmaster Swatch Collection, yes. Um, yes. Which, which although not, uh, not, not apparent to elements of the watch world that would expect something like that to work the other way around, where the perhaps <laughs> a brand may create a diffusion line, mm -hmm. This is, a, this is a brand taking an icon and placing it into the middle of a watch that sells for a tenth or less than a twentieth of the value of the yeah. original yeah. model. Um, it, it's impacted on the reputation of neither. It has only enhanced the reputation of both. So we're seeing that, you could argue, is innovation in marketing. I mean, there, there's been so much. I think people have really, um, it's, almost, it's, it's not quite that the guardrails are coming down, but people are loosening the, loosening the laces in their shoes and loosening their belts a little and saying, we can, mm -hmm. we can experiment. You know, these are, these are brands that we, we don't have fun with these, but we can experiment with them. And I think that's what's really coming through. Yeah. Uh, and the, well, to your point about the Swatch Speedmaster, I mean, people obviously loved it, the queues. I mean, it was on the news, wasn't it, literally, about how many people were, uh, were outside the boutiques and I, waiting to collect Yeah, and I think what's interesting about that, Mark, sorry to interrupt you, but uh, what was interesting is that they, that was deliberately intended to be a bricks and mortar moment. Yep. I mean, yeah, yeah. we have seen a lot of limited editions be sold in five seconds flat through on the, on yeah. the internet. Mm -hmm. But um, I think for both brands' purposes, it had to be something enshrined in a physical event in the yeah. sense that the... The, the client had to come and present themselves, and as we know, <laughs> created problems of its own. It but fundamentally, <laughs> it was wonderful to after so yeah. after two years in which we've seen the shutters down mm -hmm. in many cases. It's just so nice to see people queuing up to buy a watch. Yeah. So that's that that for me filled my heart as well. I was on Carnaby Street two nights before the launch, and the queues had already started. Yeah. I wasn't queuing two nights before, but um, it, yes, was, yeah. it was it was yeah. it was wonderful to see and the the, the energy um, of, of and. To your point about the price point, this wasn't something that was incredibly high mm. value um, and very limited availability. It was mm. they they planned for these watches to go online at a later stage and yeah, have re yeah. readily available to be readily available. So it was a frenzy that I've not seen. Um, well, that's a very interesting mm. point, Faye, because normally they they are strictly limited, thereby forcing scarcity, forcing mm -hmm. aggro, shall we say? But in this case, not aggro, forcing scarcity, forcing. Uh, uh, demand. This is not a limited piece. So that talks to people wanting it and wanting it now. Yeah. And that's, di not that's waiting. what's changed and yeah. not waiting. I mean, I promised myself we wouldn't talk about waiting lists. But I think fundamentally, there are there are the as much as there are some uh, hen's teeth models, which come with extraordinary waiting lists as a result, uh, it's broadened people's horizons into perhaps models that they will they will happily or directly pursue in place of joining a waiting list and mm -hmm. I think with respect we can see certain models that have benefited from that. Absolutely, do you think though that's the the um, the demand of the watches and the availability of those hen's teeth pieces or consumers better educated? Definitely the latter, it, it's, not in, it's not in lieu of, it's I'll have this, it, it, sorry it's not I can't have that so I'll have that, it's I, I wait for that but in the meantime I'll wear this mm. and I have got no problem wearing this as I had no problem waiting for that. I understand why I have to wait. The demand outstrips supply, you know, forces of nature and industry. However, over here, mm -hmm. I still want to wear a nice watch. And, you know, and I'm not, I'm, I understand much more. I think, with respect, a few years ago, people were much more monomaniacal and say, I want that one. And, you know, and the world's grown up and the world's learned so much more about watches and brands and watchmaking. I think, with respect, the Chronomaster Sport is a, I was a, a Zenith. Zenith Obviously, the El Primero mm -hmm. served in the um, in the Rolex Daytona. So, the, if that fact wasn't widely known a few years ago, it is relatively well known today. And the Chronomaster Sport arrives in a beautiful case, beautiful finish, beautiful um, construction with rose gold bicolors this year, mm -hmm. and an El Primero movement. I mean, you don't it's, you, do, you don't have to make an apology to own a Zenith Chronomaster Sport. You know, of course you do. You have to wait for one now. Now, exactly. <laughs> and Zenith um, is, is finding itself in the same position that, that Rolex are in. Mm -hmm. But um, so it only talks to this notion, as I said earlier, about the sort of the the, the, the rising knowledge base that is really feeding the industry with, with, I would suggest, good advice, but also sort of demand, proper you know, customer-led demand. And also uh, probably more disposable income because people weren't travelling in the way they were for yeah. the last couple of years. Yeah. So people have, uh, have got, a, got a few pounds in the bank and, uh, mm. and think, well, 
why wait to do something, I'll, I'll buy a watch. I think the consumer experience from what I've heard from other um, sectors is that, yeah, uh, there, there was a sense that I will do this when, mm -hmm. when I turn this yeah. age, when I get that promotion, mm -hmm. when I sell my business, mm -hmm. when I sell my car and <laughs> shop it in for something else, mm -hmm. you know, and now people just think, oh, don't wait. I think their lives, our lives have been touched by so much in the last couple of mm -hmm. years that people just say, no, this is, this is something I'm interested mm -hmm. in, this, I'm committing this. Yeah, this is what I call what I call permission to buy. I'm yeah. giving myself permission to buy. But that expect of immediacy also comes with its challenges, particularly in our industry. Yeah, I think I think the we, we were talking about Watson wonders what it meant to particularly the media. I mean, we got so used to the idea that we were being f um, fed information on the on the day of that going to a fair, awaiting an appointment at a certain hour to be shown product before which we had no idea what might be there. Now we have pretty much the fair's yeah. collections dropped into our email mm. boxes on yeah. the first day. Mm -hmm. So you could argue we don't need, but to your point, Fair, you can't get past meeting the brands, feeling the watches, just weighing the watches, mm -hmm. just knowing all, the, yeah. you can't really pick up fine details or indeed quality unless you have the watch in your hand. And, but the knowledge base that, that the media has has been predicated on the fact we've fed all of this information. And I think that uh, is kind of what's, what's educating people and educating them away from the idea that it's building, it's building demand, definitely. It's creating a moment where, okay, I want it, I want it now. And brands have had to get a lot more savvy about when they communicate around product if they aren't able to supply. I can remember going to the fair, as you, as you, as you will well know, where. Well, we'd be showing watches that may not even make it into stores for a year hence, until a year hence, because they hadn't actually ramped up production, nor would they until they'd met you, because they want to know exactly what you're interested in. But uh, that caused problems, but it didn't cause those many problems because there wasn't that instantaneous social media alert to this watch has been made, <laughs> and, they go, and when can I have it? When can I have it? I used to tour with a colleague who used to um, surreptitiously, in some cases, uh, go to Instagram Live and um, as we were being shown the pieces. We would always check with the brands first, but you know, he would sit there with his iPhone mm -hmm. and I would do the meeting. And then occasionally I'd look over and the screen would just be scrolling and it would just say, how much, when, yeah. how much, yeah. when. That was it, that was it. So I knew, I learned then that you, know, you, can't, you can't tease the customer too much. You, you, you had to be prepared. And if you underprepare, it may be deliberate for marketing purposes, but if you underprepare accidentally, yeah, you'll be on the wrong side of history quite quickly. And the customer has choice now. They have the knowledge to make informed alternative mm -hmm. decisions. And that's, I think, what's changed. I think one of the things that maybe the lockdown did give us, though, was when we were having product launches throughout the year, mm. and Breitling were particularly good at this, and Tudor, the product was available. Yeah. That whole anchoring your, your, your buys to one point in the year, as, as we did in, in, in the olden days, and, and waiting six months a year, 18 months for something yeah. to turn up, that did get a little bit fractured. And I think it's, it's to the benefit that, you know, Tudor can talk about the launch of the, of the Black Bay Pro, and it was in the stores on the day that the, yeah. the fair opened. So I think that's something that's a, that was probably a welcome change, really. And, and a final point on Watches and Wonders and the general approach, I think, because we have got used to multiple launches throughout the year, I don't think that will stop now. I think, yeah. I th I think, I think whether or not we will be expected to travel or attend or, or indeed find routes to mm. other affairs, I think individually the brands will constant. And as we've seen with, with brands such as Onomar Piguet, mm. Step Away from Baselworld, uh, um, sorry, Onomar Piguet, Step Away from SIHH, mm. You know, there are brands out there who will want to continue on that path. So yeah. there will always be, there will always be now a, a rhythm to the year. Mm -hmm. But I do think Watches and Wonders, if it remains in its current format, will remain the sort of the, the keystone yes. in the Norman yeah. Arch, as I say. Yeah, it'll be the moment, it'll be yeah. the, and then around it will proliferate. Particularly, I mean, we must not speak of the Swiss watch industry as the only watch industry, mm -hmm. but it will proliferate, around it which will proliferate lots of individual brand-led events. Yeah. It doesn't seem to have affected um, consumer purchasing either. So some brands and um, sort of are not choose not to showcase at these fairs now, and haven't done for a while. So it's not. It's it's a, it, we're seeing it evolve, and we'll come come on to sort of the new era and the new process and what we think is going on behind the scenes in Switzerland. But we're at the end of April, the first of April. We were still at the fair, and the Cartier Rons we've got here were, were launched this year, and it was quite. 
it's great to be able to see the product launch to your to your point, Bill. You know, you're watching online or on social media, and but it's not coming for another six months. There is a lot of product that we've got to wait for, mm. but that continuity throughout the year um, and the storytelling, I think, yeah. is is it's interesting how the brands are, have constantly react and review how they work. It's okay that some brands will only launch once a year, mm. um, but I think it's great that others there isn't they're not in the same mold. There've yeah, been decisions yeah. to keep relevant, keep um, whether it's with capsule collections or uh, limited ed limited editions throughout the year, which we know um, Brightling are very good at. But um, yeah, it's been it's been interesting to see how they have um, evolved with it, stayed loyal, moved away, come back. It's mm. it's you know it's fluid. Yeah, yeah, fluid. necessarily so. I think I think people I think. As we described it, I think the, the industry has had to change because um, the routes to market are changing, clearly. And there, I think, structurally, I think some of the reasons why brands gathered in Baselworld, where I used to walk through the hall that contained all the machinery that made, yes. in yeah. some cases, the machinery that made the machinery yeah. that made... Yeah, so that, yeah. that seems to... Have, that, that heavy industrial side of the business is presumably moved entirely online and is... is, yeah. is, is, is is, uh, or at least those events are frequented by far fewer people in far fewer numbers. But we're seeing a change at the heart of the industry and it, 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 it appears to me, I don't know how you feel about it, it appears to be looking out much more than, than um, perhaps it, uh, it has done in the last 50 years. I think it seems much more of, of the world as opposed to serving the world. And I think, sorry. Well, I was going to say, I think it, it's, it's probably a, a, there's a younger group of people in charge now i think that maybe maybe that's maybe that's the direction you know the the, the, the older guard in the in the in the uh, who are in charge of the watch houses are are, are retiring uh, and you've got some fresh blood coming in uh, have got a different outlook and a, a different um a different idea about how things should be they they probably respect the uh, the heritage of the brands but they're willing to kind of tweak things a little bit so there's a youthful influence that are both respect. You've just used the word respect. So mm -hmm. respecting the loyalty and the integrity of where the brands are coming from, but equally recognise that it can't stay. Yeah. It, that mm -hmm. it can't. It can't stay. It's yeah. Yeah. Where I it think. Has I, been. I think you're absolutely right. I think there's a certainly the generation that that, that nursed and protected the Swiss watch industry mm -hmm. through the quartz crisis uh, have now, if they've not retired, are very much yeah. about to retire, mm -hmm. which brings in a generation who, whilst being very aware of and very respectful of what mm -hmm. they've been handed, given the work that was done to protect these brands, weren't directly connected at that point. Mm -hmm. So they don't, they come with, a, with, a, with fresh eyes, and also with respect, they're coming at a time when um, technology um, yeah. has, has not in, in no way supplanted the need for a watch, but has challenged the need for a watch. And, so they're very aware, we are all aware, that you know, this is a product that you buy with your heart mm -hmm. as much as your head, and you buy it for, for many supplementary reasons to simply telling the time. And, and that brings a different discipline to how watches are designed and, and, and sold. And that isn't to suggest that the previous generation hadn't spotted that and weren't working towards that, but the new generation have this, I feel, they, they don't seem to carry that burden of, of, of of that sort of, of knowledge, history. exactly yes. the yeah. burden of history with them, mm -hmm. and that, and that, and as we see at Tagliere, Frederick Arnaud is currently the CEO, and uh, his brother Jean is at Louis Vuitton, and his brother Alexander is at Tiffany. You know, these are these are very young men, and yeah. they are coming with a with a great uh, purview, given mm -hmm. their position as members of the Arnaud family, as to what the luxury world mm -hmm. looks like and what it could look like and what it should look like, and therefore that's going to have its own impact, I think, on on the watch industry. So it's, and at every, I can't speak for the watchmaking fraternity, which is very local to the regions of Switzerland and beyond where watches are produced, but in terms of the wider uh, business, the marketing business, for instance, you're seeing people join who haven't grown up around the watch industry. So they're bringing in uh, attitudes and skills and ideas from outside into mm -hmm. the watch industry. And that will only have one effect, which is to broaden again mm -hmm. how the watch industry views itself and how it wishes to be viewed. Mm -hmm. So th th this is, we're, we're talking about newness. I wouldn't say this has all again happened in the last 18 months, but you're coming out of this forced abeyance when we weren't really allowed to focus on it. Mm -hmm. we, we were able to go to Watch Some Wonders and you saw lots of fresh faces, lots of new faces. And, and as Mark and I will attest, lots of younger faces. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, absolutely.
Um, what was your favourite watch, Mark? Or watches? Well, um, worst question to ask, right? Yeah, well, it is really. Um, I, I mean, Bill obviously mentioned the Solograph, um, which I think that's. I like the idea that it's a, a, a sort of black DLC case. It looks really, really dark. Everything about it looks dark, yet it's got great loom. It's got loom in the in the in the in the carbon fibre bezel, so it looks fantastic at night, mm. and it's powered by by light by, by the sun. Um, and the technology there is is sort of remarkable. Is it sort of, uh, um, I don't know, a full day's sunlight gives it six months charge or something, uh, which is which is remarkable. Um, so that was, from a technology point of view, that was uh, that that was quite something. Um, I love the Black Bay Pro. Um, I thought that was a really really cool watch. Um, I liked the GMT that they'd done with mm. the with steel in yellow coming back to the yellow point. So they'd added. Um, a bit of uh, yellow gold to the uh, to the to the case and bracelet. Um, probably would come out though on top with the with the Patek 5170G 5172G the chronograph with the, with the with the rose gilt dial. That was a killer for me. It was absolutely mm. fantastic. Yeah. We're in danger of agreeing, but we'll agree on the Sodograph. Yeah. Again, and talking to sort of brand values and brand heritage, it's an inno it's, it's an innovative looking piece. Yeah. It's youthful. It's it's. Mm. Uh, it's well priced, mm -hmm. as you say. It's kind of bulletproof from a yeah. practical point mm -hmm. of view. You can throw it in a drawer and it will restart yeah. within minutes. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, and this comes back to my sort of fascination with travel generally, but I think I think the uh, 5326G, the Patek Philippe annual calendar dual time, yeah. is 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 kind of if I. If you needed one watch in your life, which heaven forbid we ever would, <laughs> I think I could get a long way with that one. Yeah, I, yeah. It's, we, perhaps we should do Desert Island watches, because I think yeah. Mark has yeah. run four down already. Yeah, I yeah. think we could carry on. I mean, I think the Cartier piece is not just the yeah. Cousin de Cartier squidgy piece, mm -hmm. but also I love the Santos collection. I thought the lacquered mm -hmm. pieces were just remarkable. And I thought they were incredibly well priced. Good value. Yeah. Very good value. And of course, the Mousse de Cartier with the beautiful black dial, yeah. I mean, 2000 plus. I mean, it's. it's the There's been a lot of debate over that, whether yeah. it's. Is it Cartier? Is it not? I, I think that's a winner. But I think they, they did it in the it. one shots last year yes, in, in yeah. with the colour, mm. uh, sold out completely. Um, yeah. But this is a, a will be part of their uh, core collection. Yeah. Um, and yeah. again, that 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 pricing, it's vers versatile. And there wasn't anything about that watch I disliked. It, mm. I, the simplicity of it was beautiful as yeah. well. No, I, I, I think there were probably half a dozen watches I'd have been very happy to leave the stands with, but <laughs> <laughs> was refused. Faye, what was your piece of the um, fair? Cartier Chinois. Um, I'm really taken with yellow gold this year. Maybe it's because we haven't seen it for a while, or I'm also sort of um, sort of showing my age in terms of how long we've been in the industry. It, it, some um, it's cyclical. We we, we see cycles yeah. of quite a lot of product. Yellow gold hasn't been massive over recent years. Um, rose gold has been very prevalent, and rightly so. It's not to dismiss anything that any brand does, um, but I was very taken with that. I like a vintage watch anyway. I uh, liked the additional models of, for uh, Zenith, the Chrono Master Sport in the steel and rose and the rose gold. Uh, great watch, legitimacy of the movement. Just coming into its own, I think I like the story of it as much as I, yeah. as, as I like the watch. And um, TAG, I've always liked the Monaco's and they did, they've got a few great limited editions, mm -hmm. um, the Golf, um, um, the, uh, Dark the, Lord the Dark Lord, the, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, Night Driver. Yeah, yeah okay. and there was a beautiful um, Carrera chronograph with a, like a cherry coloured dial. Oh, yes, um, I Yeah, and I, 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 it's one I keep coming back to, mm. which surprised me because there are certain brands that I will naturally lean to or I've got a natural interest in or just in terms of what we do workload-wise. But um, yeah, I was, I, was, I was very taken with that. I suppose if we're talking story of the fair, which was my favourite story, I think possibly the Bulgari Octo Finissimo story, 10 years old, yeah. eight world records, yeah. fantastic mm -hmm. follow through on yep. what was a, a bold step yeah. into ultra thin watchmaking. Yeah. And then to top it with the ultra this year, the yes. world's thinnest, yeah. 1.8 millimetre. Mm -hmm. But the story for me was Fabrizio, its designer, uh, earlier sketches for the original Octo being reproduced on the dial, which coming back to design Innovation in the sense yeah. that there's not many hand-scribed dials. There's been hand-tooled dials, yeah. but not many that contain the, yeah. the hand-scribed. Um, Baluti, perhaps. But 
the idea that Fabrizio's original drawings would find their way onto the dial, it, it, it was just naturalistic and it was, it was humane, it was yeah. naturalistic, and it wasn't flashy and it wasn't, it wasn't innovation for the sake of innovation. You just looked at it and thought, God, that's really novel. I really like that. And you know, it, you, we had to celebrate a fantastic achievement by everyone at Bulgari. Yeah. So if, to summarise, we saw in terms of the themes, they all feel really exciting. Um, shape, design, innovation, travel and exploration, mm -hmm. colour, um, so vibrancy, and sustainability. Um, mm -hmm. That feels like they were the key themes and trends that we saw. Yep. Um, I'll take that after a couple of years of being indoors um, and coupled with the traditional element and the brands that we, that we you know, were lucky enough to, mm -hmm. to see and, 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 and love. Um, Bill, did you have any other thoughts about the fair this year? You've just reminded me of the, uh, I'll defer to you both now. I think if you had to sum it up in a single word, which is a scary word, it's choice. I mean, I don't think, I think now as, as, as a customer, there is so much opportunity. And to choose between colour and, and uh, never mind brand, model, size, now we are choosing between colour and shape and levels of innovation. A degree of sustainability which the mm. clients now require. Yep. It's, not an, it's, not an, it's not an either or anymore. Mm -hmm. It's where does this come from and what does it mean to the planet if I buy it and keep it. I think all of these things are bringing a, a, just a plethora of choices mm -hmm. which you will now be charged with um, taking the client on a journey through to their final purchase or purchases and I think right now it'll be purchases because I think we're in a there's a the floodgates are opening on on some fantastic new pieces yeah and I, I also think um, it shows how robust the industry is to come through a, a pandemic um, in, in the way it has and to produce uh, and launch so many different watches so many so many wonderful timepieces it, it doesn't look like people are kind of digging their way out of a hole. It just looks like everything is flying and, and, and they're adding more to it. So I think it's a, it's, it's a great time for watchers, it really is. Well, after that summary, Bill, Mark, it's been lovely to be able to talk with you both today. Thank you so much for your feedback. Um, I personally can't express how lovely it's been to see some watches and see how the industry has responded this year and be back at a watch fair. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Calibre podcast. We do hope you've enjoyed it. To watch this video in full or to discover more exciting horological content, subscribe to the Watches of Switzerland YouTube channel. To listen to more of our podcasts, please subscribe to the Calibre podcast on Apple and Spotify. <laughs>